Hello and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. I'm Priyanka and we're in conversation with Simran Gieser. Simran is the founder and CEO of the Appointment Scheduling and Booking Industry Association, TASBIA. Now, we've spent a number of weeks talking about various supply chain challenges with regards to the vaccine in the first mile, middle mile, and last mile. Have you ever thought about how the scheduling works if you're a citizen looking to book a spot? Have you thought about the various challenges and bottlenecks if scheduling is done incorrectly? Imagine what happens when everything else is done right in terms of demand planning and the logistics and the vaccines get to the clinics as they should, but eventually are not received by the beneficiaries because of scheduling gone wrong. Add to this the additional complication that every state in the US follows their own rules and their own platforms and do not have a centralized database like the UK or Canada. How do you then keep track of all of your citizens getting inoculated and scheduling them back for the second dose? We discuss all of this and more with Simran. Simran, um, would you please take us through your journey of the Appointment Scheduling and Booking Industry Association, uh, or TASBIA, I think as you call it, uh, and how it's impacting the vaccination effort in the United States? Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. And I founded uh, the association to really promote uh, the idea of appointment scheduling and booking because there's so many situations where it can improve an experience between a customer, if you will, or a user of a service and the provider of that service. And many people don't really understand it. And that was the founding of the association based on my experience in the industry, uh, because a lot of the companies would like to promote this idea without necessarily trying to sell people. Now, back about a year ago, when the COVID-19 crisis began, I noticed that a lot of the COVID-19 testing was appointment-driven, and a lot of those systems were not very good, or it wasn't easy to find out whether there were actually appointments available. And I began to investigate how to make this happen, which, of course, led me to some of the government agencies in the United States, as well as working with vendors. Um, and that was really the beginning of my interest in the area. And then, of course, when vaccination started, the same problem occurs, of course. Now you have the complexity of you know, supply and you have two different appointments you might have to make in, in some cases. So, But the idea is the same. You know, How do you make it easy for somebody to get this service, whether it's a, a COVID test, a vaccination, or you know any other thing, but this is obviously a very critical type of appointment. It's different than just making an appointment at a store or at a bank or to get a haircut, right? But when you, when you look at it, it's the same problem and a lot of the same technology can be applied. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you know, what kind of efforts is maybe the government making in order to solve mm -hmm. the scheduling crisis? Uh, and are they even effective? In the United States, and I'll talk specifically about the U.S., although it's different in other countries, obviously there's lots of issues around this, including the supply chain management itself, which is, you know, getting the supply, getting that out mm -hmm. to the places where it's needed, uh, which is a lot of what your focus is on. However, what happened in the United States is because there was also a transition in presidential administrations while this was going on in February and January. What happened is that the ability to get the supply was really separated from the ability to deliver it to the people. 
And I think that's where a lot of the problems have occurred. And I also want to say that in this particular situation with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's so many people that have tried to do the right thing. And they're really working hard. They, They want to help. They want to make sure the vaccine gets out. They want to get people better. And I don't think it's for lack of trying, but I think it's just one of those things that I know you are aware of. It's even with the best of intentions, you have complexity in the systems and you have sometimes mixed messages or, you know, sort of different approaches. And it's also very decentralized so that at the national level, they were able to say, look, we're going to get this supply out to you. And, you know, you're apportioned this amount, which is appropriate. But then it was really left up to the states and to the what would be called the jurisdictions, which might be counties or cities or other geographical areas to really get that last mile problem solved, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that the government tried to create an appointment scheduling system. It actually was trying to do supply chain, appointment scheduling, uh, data analytics, and they hired uh, a firm to do that and build that for the CDC and then offer that for free to the states. But there was actually not as much take up on that as they wanted because it was very large, it was complex, it was Mm. um, in some ways sort of a bureaucratic system, if you will. And, you know, it was also built very quickly. So that was also a problem. I think they recognized they needed something at the federal level, tried to come up with something they could offer, but it was just probably a little bit too much to bite off in too short a time. All right. So uh, so the government did come up with a scheduling system of their own. Does that mean that if it wasn't used or deployed by different clinics or health authorities of different states, that they are then able to choose what kind of scheduling system they want to use? Do they have that kind of uh, autonomy? Yeah, they absolutely do have that autonomy. And a lot of it was positioned as this is an option for you. And that system was called VAMS, the Vaccine uh, Management System, V-A-M-S. And it was adopted by some states. But even those that that did adopt it and really tried to use it found it was challenging. And this really gets to the heart of the matter that, you know, a lot of medical scheduling systems of any type are really for the convenience of the, the, the system and not for the convenience of the user. And I'll give you an example of that, you know, and this is true for many of these systems. You know, you were asked to put in a lot of information. Who are you? Tell me all your medical situation. What's your health insurance? And there would be question after question, page after page. And you really, you know, as a user, all you want to know is, can I get an appointment somewhere near yeah. me? That's really the question, right? And you also know whether you're qualified or not, because it was pretty clear what the criteria were. I, you know, first it was, you know, are you a first responder? Are you over 65? And I don't think that that was a big problem to identify. Oh, yes, I am qualified. Now, just tell me where I can get a darn appointment. And his systems didn't make it easy because they were built very bureaucratically where you had to go through this entire form, might take 15, 20 minutes. And then you get to the end and it says, oh, I'm sorry, there's no appointments. And that was incredibly frustrating. And it was even more so because, uh, you know, if those states had adopted a centralized system, um, most of them didn't. They were using something they may have purchased or may have uh, uh, tried to uh, modify or in some cases off the shelf, what I call off the shelf mm-hmm. software like a Calendly or something like that, where literally a local county or city would say, look, we got to solve this. Just go use some software. Oh, I use Calendly. Let's use that. 
And that was, <laughs> so there's wow. literally probably at least 20 systems being used. Many of them, the vendors don't even know they're being used for that use case wow. because the, somebody just went and chose it, right? And they had to do something. Um, but the, the challenge with this all was that as a user uh, or as a, you know, uh, a citizen or whatever you want to call the users of the, of the systems, you would have to go and you know, research it and then look and say, well, where are they offering all the appointments? Oh, I see there's some central locations that the state has. And then plus they're at the pharmacies and, oh, they're also at the grocery stores. And you'd literally have to go and click on every link. Each link takes you to a different type of system. Sometimes you went to a, a site where it was a grocery store or a pharmacy where it said, please create your account with us. And I'm like, I don't want to create an account. I don't want to get marketing. I just want to find out it was a vaccination. And this is really where we were at. So even though the systems themselves work perfectly, and that wasn't always the case, some of them crashed for various reasons, it didn't really matter because also there was a lack of supply in the chain, right? And now we hopefully we'll have more original question executed, except for the fact that there's a lot of well-meaning people that tried to make it work. And I think when we talked earlier, I said, there's actually these people they called the vaccine appointment angels. <laughs> and there were, and there's communities of these people in every state and every region at town levels that will literally... They were, you know, helping the folks that were maybe 75 or 70 years old, or just those that didn't really have any computer, you know, um, expertise, because the stuff was kind of complicated. And they would actually go and do that work on behalf of somebody to get them an appointment. And they became essentially what would be called a medical scheduler in the industry. And they were all volunteer networks. So the fact that that was happening, and also the fact that people were building systems and this happened in Massachusetts, New York, and many other places where individual programmers, uh, one person worked at Athena Health, the other worked at Airbnb, or they did, you know, they were literally just frustrated. And they said, you know, I'm going to build something that will go out, find all the places where there's appointments and show you if there are any available, exactly the question I was talking about. And they built these systems that now people are using. So it was a lot of uh, what I would call grassroots uh, work to kind of fill in the gaps that the, you know, the systems were not really providing the answer for. Wow. That's obviously sad, be amazing at the same time, right? I think it goes back to showing that uh, what you said originally, which is that there's a lot of well-meaning that, you know, good work done. And uh, sometimes it really does take a village. Let's talk a little bit about some private and tech-enabled initiatives then on sure. help scheduling. Sure. So I think, First of all, the most recent uh, sort of global event uh, or global offering was something called vaccinefinder.org, which was launched probably about two or three weeks ago in the U.S., which was an attempt to centralize what I was talking about. If I lived in a particular location, could I see all the places near me and could I find if there's appointments? And unfortunately, at this point, the data there is very sparse. It only supports about seven states. And even then, the data is really provided by the endpoints, by the locations, and those people have to daily upload files. And you and I know that if you ask people to do that, you're not gonna get very good data. It's gonna be spotty. It's not gonna be very accurate sometimes. And they're at the mercy of that data. So even though that's a well-intentioned system, it really is not quite there yet. If the data was done automatically, if there was wide uh, use of it on the, you know, by the providers of that data, then it would be a really good system. So unfortunately it's, it's an attractive user interface and it looks like it should do more than it does. And, and unfortunately it's frustrating. So that was one effort and that's a CDC had helped do that. Um, but 
the reality of it is that a lot of states have their own systems, which initially were just showing like a map of all the locations. And then again, users would have to click and then know that a particular site might be, you know, available or that vaccines were being released. So that was sort of the, the, um, the public offerings. Now at the technology side, you know, um, I would say most of those companies that were providing the software were scrambling to try to fix some of the issues. Some of the bigger companies, um, there's one called PrepMod, which is used by a lot of the um, uh, states and organizations. And they were actually in the business of building these systems for things like clinics. But mm. if you back up for a moment, a lot of these systems were designed for a different use case. Um, we're going to set up a clinic and we're going to do flu shots or, you know, something like that. And the scale was relatively constrained, right? Um, and if you think about the scale of the COVID epidemic, it's orders of magnitude bigger, you know, 100, 1,000, 10,000 times the number of people. And that was one of the issues is that the technology solutions, even though they were, you know, they worked from a functional standpoint, they were not intended to be the system where, if the governor of the state said, tomorrow morning, everybody that's 65 and older, go to this website address at nine o'clock in the morning. And you and I know that isn't gonna work when you have a million people hitting the website and 5,000 doses. And whether or not the website crashes or whether or not the website works perfectly, but simply says, guess what? There's no appointments. It's yeah. still the same result, right? And that's yeah. an issue with policy and the way things are rolled out, not an issue with technology. But I think the technology initiatives, typically those systems, by the way, any appointment scheduling system has very common features. You want to be able to see availability and you want to be able to uh, make sure that, you know, that appointment's going to be uh, confirmed with an email or an SMS text message. You want to be able to let people reschedule or cancel. That gets a little tricky. Um, and in this case, you have the complication of a second appointment requirement right. with the Moderna vaccine uh, and the Pfizer vaccine. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, some of those, companies did say, oh boy, we better offer a second appointment as part of this, right? Or, or make it easy for people to do that. Some did not. And in some cases, when the person showed up to get their vaccine, they would take them aside and say, okay, now let's schedule your second vaccine, right? And in other cases, they said, go use the mobile app. And some people said, I don't know how to use a mobile app, right? So again, that's where, you know, we're techies and we think, oh, just tell somebody to go use a mobile app. That does not always work. You know, you have to literally sometimes get people on a phone or sit down with them to do that. And, you know, again, the technology was rapidly trying to catch up with those kinds of requirements that were very specific to the vaccination program, which would be very different than other kinds of appointments. Right. That makes a whole bunch of sense. Is there a way of cross system learning? And also, uh, is it is it is there some way of aggregating the lessons or the data or the analytics that you have from what these systems tell you? Um, for example, if there's a way to know what are the number average number of that you expect in a specific location or, you know, the number of people that actually successfully show up to a second appointment or anything like that, really, how long it takes someone to book an appointment, things like that. Is this data kind of being pulled and is there any learning to come from it? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. A lot of these systems do have analytics. And when you think about it, many of them were designed to be either general purpose, uh, so they're not necessarily specific for the medical you know, or healthcare use case, right? 
And then some people were using those very, you know, generic systems like a Calvary appointment plus even uh, Eventbrite was being used in Florida, which, you know, was meant for things like, you know, going to uh, dance parties. I mean, right. because somebody just said, I'm going to pick this. So then they were constrained by whatever that system had. And there were some analytics built in. But when you get into the more advanced capabilities, I think, to be honest with you, during this period of time, there was not enough time to even figure out what was going on. They were so overwhelmed with the volume of people coming in and there really wasn't enough supply. That mismatch, I think, blew up a lot of the analytics, right? Um, and with things like cancellations, it gets even trickier because of the way that those clinics or those um, what they call point of dispensing PODs work is that they typically know in a certain day, they're gonna dispense a certain number of vaccination shots and they're gonna have the staffing a certain way. So when you have cancellations, it can be very disruptive. Um, however, uh, if you get them you know, a couple of days in advance, you can then reopen those slots. And so typically software will automatically do that. It will say, oh, you know, I have a cancellation, we'll reopen. So if somebody refreshed, they could see that slot availability. But again, because you had so many people coming in, it almost is overwhelming that kind of basic functionality, right? So there are also situations, and this is where you get into really complex issues where, you know, a bunch of people had scheduled vaccinations. And I was watching the Newswire every day to see, you know, articles about appointment scheduling. And this would pop up every day or so in some location in the U.S. where, you know, people had made appointments and then they had to cancel all of them because they didn't have the supply. Oh, so they wow. were told they were going to receive, you know, X number of, you know, vials or what have you. And they didn't. And now they're like, Oh my God, we've got to reschedule all these people. Now, some of the software automates that so that it will actually send out an automated email or text message saying, I'm sorry, we have to reschedule, click here to reschedule. And some of them didn't, which meant they had to manually do that. So that's an example where, you know, you want to make sure the software has that kind of capability um, and not every software does that. So, you know, it's tricky because there's a lot of unanticipated things that occur when you have such a complex system. And that's one example where some of the features will make a difference. Yeah, that's just so interesting. I mean, I guess flip side uh, of this specific incident where there have been so many articles about how there have been like uh, too much supply in a specific clinic because of either no shows or because they weren't expecting it. In, in that kind of scenario, do these scheduling systems have the capability of maybe having some kind of wait list or something like that, mm. where they can then notify people on the wait list saying, hey, like you obviously didn't have an appointment, but it turns out that we actually do have additional supplies. Yeah. Well, you know, if you do that for each individual location, obviously it's really difficult because imagine that that existed and some of the systems have that, right? But then as a user, I literally have to go to each of those places and figure out how to register. Now, a lot of that was happening what I would call on the gray area where people knew someone at the fire station and said, mm -hmm. when you get to the end of the day, call me. Or okay. in the early days, some of the hospital chains uh, were quote testing the system and they invited some of the hospital trustees to come in. That didn't go over too well. Right. I mean, and that brings up all sorts of equity issues, right? Because it's, it's not a fair system, yeah. but there is a guy uh, that built a system exactly like this. It's called Dr. B and he's uh, an ex-ZocDocs guy. Mm -hmm. And they did set up a site and have it operational today where you can go to it. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's hidrb.com. And you sign up, you put where you're located and you say, if there's an appointment available, text me. 
and you get, I think, uh, 24 hours to respond. If you don't, you go to the back of the line. Now, I know very little about what is going on with that system because it's not incredibly transparent. It basically says, you're number 2,400,000 in line. <laughs> you know, like, what? But obviously, that's not accurate because they're doing it by state. I'm assuming that they're going out and reaching out to some of these clinics and saying, if you register with us, you can actually publish at the end of the day or when you know you'll have extra capabilities uh, to our platform and we will broadcast it out so you don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really admirable thing. I haven't heard much about the efficacy, to be honest with you, but that is somebody took that on as a project. Again, purely volunteer. This is the, they're not getting any money for this. They're just doing this really as a, uh, you know, something to offer to the community. And, you know, the take up rate, as I said, I'm not sure how high it is, but the idea is exactly what you're talking about. And they did it as an aggregated site rather than everybody having to individually do it. That's amazing. Let's move a second from talking about grassroots initiatives to actually Big tech, uh, because how can we not? Now, there's obviously talks about Facebook and Google uh, mm -hmm. recently kind of getting into vaccine scheduling, right? Can you maybe walk me through like how that effort is panning out? What mm -hmm. is their role and how effective is it? Right. So obviously, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, for that matter, um, Apple, you know, with Apple Maps. I mean, any software company that has a audience of people um, and they have mapping capability. They have obviously very scalable platforms and all those companies do that, right? Have this opportunity and I think have a responsibility to try to help. The challenge is that how do you do it in an organized way? Because the last thing you want to do is ask every clinic, hey, can you log into Microsoft and log into Apple and log into you know, Facebook and log into Google and tell us what's going on? They're just yeah. never going to do it, right? So one of the things that the vaccinefinder.org uh, group did, and they work with a company called Castlight and Boston's Children's Hospital, is the, this is one of the things they're attempting to do is to centralize that so that if you send your data to them, they will then aggregate it, or I should say syndicate it out. And that, I believe, is what Facebook announced. And I think that Google will be announcing something similar to that because they don't want to reinvent the wheel there. So yeah. the idea is if you can get everybody to cooperate and to send the data in, then they will then provided out to those other systems. Now, those systems could display the data differently. You know, the Google map might look different than the Microsoft map and the Facebook interface might look a little different. Uh, but the idea would be, you know, no matter where you are and whatever platform you like to use, you would have access to that in a way which would be equivalent to maybe going to that website or calling a centralized 800 number or something. And I'm all for that because to me, the more places you can see it, the better. My only concern, again, is that if the data itself that, that is being fed in is not complete or is, you know, even in some cases just wrong information, that just multiplies it out, right? So then that brings us back to how do we solve that problem? And that's a separate issue. But they are all trying to, I think, help in whatever way they can. Um, I think originally Google had put an announcement out and the CEO had blogged, I think, about a month or so ago about how they were, you know, donating money to the effort and that they were trying to help. And I think originally some of that was including, you know, using their physical facilities for offering vaccination appointments. There's lots of ways to obviously help out, but I think the bigger challenge for them was that they didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So I believe that they are partnering up that way. And that's the, that's the latest that I know that's public information about that. And again, CDC has kind of blessed the Boston Children's Hospital and the vaccinefinder.org 
team to do this. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I guess the other question that I have is, you know, one of the problems that the U.S. has is that it's, you know, a lot of the effort is, has been down to the states, right? It's not like mm-hmm. the UK or Canada where it's a centralized system. Which states have used the scheduling infrastructure in the most effective manner? And which are the ones that you think are actually facing? Yeah, so if you go up to 40,000 feet, I mean, one of the differences, obviously, between the US, uh, which is, you know, very decentralized with the states, the counties, you know, the, the different jurisdictions, and say the UK, which has the National Health Service. Um, and we talked about the fact that if you have something like that, where you know who all the people are, you know their demographic information, you have their health information, you can come up with a centralized registration system because you already have everybody. And then you can decide what your strategy is. You know, we're going to start with the 75-year-olds and the 70-year-olds and the set, you know, and you can come up with something that's transparently um, communicated and then start executing on it. Now, in the U.S., there have been a couple of states that have done that. They tended to be the smallest states, which kind of makes sense because they had a little more control over what's going on. Um, One of them was West Virginia. And um, there's a gentleman by the name of Ting Long Dai who's looked at this, you know, and basically, you know, said one of the things that they were able to do is leverage this very, you know, close knit community model that they had there and use what they would consider to be the local pharmacies, because in that particular part of the country, that local pharmacy was a hub and people knew everybody personally, literally. And so it just worked very effectively based on the specific demographics and the way that works. But again, that same model doesn't necessarily work in California or New York or Massachusetts or any other bigger states, right? Right. So I think when they were really using the method that would be called pre-registration, we kind of know who everybody is and now we're going to reach out and everybody can trust that we're going to reach out in a way which is, you know, makes sense and is orderly. Now, that doesn't work so well as the state population gets bigger. And what's happened in most of the states in the middle is you've got two efforts going on. One is what I would consider to be the state-led effort, which might be mass vaccination sites or centralized models of registration. And then the second one is the federal government said, you know what, we're going to distribute out through pharmacies. And they chose something like 20 or more pharmacies and grocery stores to actually distribute this out, but it was not done in conjunction with the states. It was done almost as a parallel effort. And so now you have the situation where, let's say, I personally could go register with the state to get in line, but on the side, I could try to get an appointment at the at the pharmacy, right? Mm. And they said, that's okay, go do that. But that's, you know, awkward and it, yeah. it makes it hard, right? But that's basically where we're at, where we have almost like a two-track system going on. So I would say, you know, West Virginia did a pretty good job, Vermont. I mean, so what's interesting is Massachusetts was saying, hey, we have the best rate of vaccinations among big states, i.e. more than 5 million in population. They're trying to kind of position that positively. But there really is a difference between the larger and the small states. And I think the challenge is the bigger the states, the more complicated. And then you get into even jurisdictions like New York City or the city of Los Angeles or the city of Chicago, where, you know, they've got a huge population base. Um, and they have lots of challenges. And Chicago, for example, I think they have literally six different systems running in parallel, some from wow. pri- some from off-the-shelf vendors, some from the state, some that are just like the pharmacy system that they happen to be using. It's kind of not great, but they were just like, let's flip all the switches on and see what happens. And I think that was part of the response of this 
is there's a little bit of panic, like we got to get this, we got to do something, right? And so unfortunately, in that sort of rush to do things, it created a lot of different parallel systems. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, again, a smaller population, you know, known distribution channels made it a lot easier, but that's just hard to replicate. Right. That makes sense. And I guess because the effort is so crucial, I think in a way, and because there's no, this has never happened before, there's no precedence for it. It's, it's in a way also hedging, you know, things that could potentially go wrong. Because if you're just trusting one scheduling system and say if it goes down and you have nothing more to work off of. So I guess that's the, I guess the pro, if you want to call it, of using multiple systems, that there is at least something to go off of if something doesn't work. Right. Well, there's, if you back up a minute, though, on the very early days, so going back at the end of last year, there was a known set of people that everybody wanted to vaccinate first, um, two groups, actually. One was the healthcare workers, mm-hmm. right, and the frontline people. And the second were people in the nursing homes. Because as you remember, that was just a terrible situation where there was huge mortality rates, right, amongst people in those congregate, they call them the congregate settings. And they did a very good job of that because they could identify them all. They go, we know where all the nursing homes are. We got them on a list. We're just going to go out there and we're going to do it. So that worked well. But again, it was a very, you know, a fairly defined population. They could, they were, you know, they knew where they could find them, right? And, but as soon as you got beyond those very defined groups where all the hospital employees would come in or all the people could go out to the nursing homes, then it got a lot more complicated because we don't really have that central database like you do in the UK that says, okay, where was everybody? Who are they? Where are they located? Do we have a way to contact them? And it was up to individuals to do that, or they started to try to say, well, if you're, you know, uh, have insurance, we'll reach out to you, but not everybody has the same insurance company. They're all different systems. And again, it very quickly became this kind of highly decentralized spaghetti that, that happened once you got beyond those highly defined groups. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've been talking about vaccine scheduling um, uh, this whole time. What about COVID testing scheduling as well? I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, in the early days, people getting tested only when uh, they had uh, like a symptom or something like that. I can, mm-hmm. I can imagine now it's a lot more uh, commonplace. You know? People have to get tested regularly if they have to go into work and things like that. Uh, what is happening in the testing space um, for COVID tests? Yeah, it's interesting because so much of the um, focus in the last uh, month or so has been on the vaccinations, right? But testing is still going to be required and still a a requirement. For example, if I leave the state of Massachusetts right now, um, even if I go like next door to a state and I come back in, I, as a resident, I supposedly have to get a negative COVID test. I have to register. I have to be quarantined for two weeks if I don't do it. I mean, that still exists, right? And it's a, it's a similar situation in many other places. So to your point, I think one of the biggest issues in the United States is really who's paying for it. Unfortunately, that's a reality, um, as, as sad as it is. And with the COVID um, vaccinations, it was very clear that the government, the federal government was going to pay for it. All right. They were going to reimburse. And you were asked to give your insurance information, but it wasn't really necessary. You know, they weren't going to not let you do it if you didn't have insurance information. However, COVID testing still is one of those things that it is a chargeable item unless you happen to find a place that will do it for free. And there are some, like Google has a project baseline um, free uh, COVID testing, which is an excellent system. They have great registration, great appointment scheduling, but it's only in certain places where they happen to be offering it, right? So I think the same challenge there is that we need to have a centralized system. We need to make it easier. 
Um, I can't myself say it should be free for everybody, but I think it should be because if you remove, you want to remove as many of the barriers as possible. I mean, the last thing you want to do is somebody that, you know, should be tested, but doesn't get tested because they're worried about having to pay for it. Right. So I think that's unfortunately still a barrier in addition to the technology and other issues that we've got. But I think that that is something that we have an opportunity to fix. And by the way, this, you know, this whole situation we find ourselves in um, with the pandemic, you know, we may be doing something like this again in two years and five years. I mean, it would be nice to learn from the mistakes and to build something out now. And I think a lot of people that are public health professionals, uh, which I am not, but they've been talking about the fact that, you know, the whole area has been underfunded. They really need to um, step up at the federal level and say, look, we're going to create systems so that this, should this happen again, we're not scrambling again. And everybody's yeah. like out for the bad scramble to fix the problem on the fly because mm -hmm. we learn better, right? Absolutely. Well, speaking of learning better, do you think there are, I mean, I know that your uh, focus or your background is mostly within the United States and what's happening there. But um, have you been following, do you, do you think that there are lessons to be learned from uh, the scheduling industry in other countries, perhaps? Well, I think, so for, for example, the idea of scheduling, right? And if we get away from, you know, COVID uh, vaccination specifically, the idea of appointment scheduling has become uh, in some industries a must have where before it was not. So I'll give you, you know, I'm sure you're aware of examples, especially in, and this is true both in the U.S. as well as Europe and, and the rest of the world where, you know, things as simple as going to get a hair appointment, right? You could just walk in and, and say, I'm here. Well, you're not doing that anymore. I mean, you walk by those, those stores and it says you must make an appointment. Yeah. Um, and that could be for a hair appointment. It could be for going to the bank to do a banking transaction to get access to say, your safety deposit box or open an account or do some kind of transaction. Um, it could be for... Um, uh, going to a fitness center. And then that has also led to other innovations. For example, you know, obviously telehealth has just exploded because mm -hmm. people with the uh, more, um, you know, schedulable visits to the doctor that they would normally have, you know, couldn't go to the doctor or, you know, what have you. And so telehealth took off because of that. And that was appointment scheduling with a video conference. And that has also happened with things like even yoga and, you know, exercise. So it's, it's opened up actually this interesting opportunity for the appointment scheduling companies and for the businesses to offer this. It's really changing the dynamic of how people work with, you know, all sorts of different uh, retailers and businesses, as well as the health, you know, care side of it. So that is one of the questions that I'm really curious about, which is, is that going to survive? In other words, when we're past this crisis, are people just going to all go back to their old ways? Or are we going to still have people who say, you know what, that was really convenient to be able to make an appointment and come in and, and a lot better than waiting in line. Um, I'd like to do that again. Or, you know, that video thing that I did, mm -hmm. that was pretty good. I think I'll do that again. I mean, people may be burned out on Zoom calls by then, yeah. but... Um, I do believe personally, and this has been a big discussion in the retail industry, which I know you're very familiar with, as to whether or not, you know, will it, will it survive? Will this kind of interaction, you know, be something that the consumers will want later? And my feeling is, yes, I think they will, because they'll have learned that it's actually, in some ways, a better experience for, you know, working with people. Um, what are some of the things that you would personally like to see within the industry once we get past the pandemic? Well, I think that the companies that are offering this technology have 
learned a number of things from the vaccination piece of it. And part of it is just, you know, again, ease of use, which we talk about a lot in software, but it really makes sense to, you know, how do you simplify things as much as possible? How do you make it easy for the user uh, to schedule things, you know, whether they have a computer or a phone or maybe on the phone. And there's actually been a lot of work being done right now to do this through the voice interfaces using AI, which, you know, up to this point, no, nobody really likes talking to the computer or mm. talking to the, to the automated voice. But when you call up and it says, hey, would you like to make a scheduled appointment? I can help you do it. And people say, well, okay, I'll give this a shot. And if it works well, people are willing to do that. So I think some of the AI and natural language stuff may actually get a boost. And I've been talking to companies doing that and have said, yes, there's definitely an increase in interest in that. Because um, if your whole point in calling is just to make an appointment, you really need to have a person doing that if you can automate it in a, in a friendly way. So that's one very specific thing. But it's actually fairly important because that industry is looked for sort of, you know, what's something that we can really leverage and take advantage of. And I think that's one area of technology that um, could really play a big role and people will become much more comfortable, you know, in doing that because they see the value, right? So that's one specific. And as far as, you know, just sort of the businesses themselves, many of them saw a downturn. Uh, And this is more to the business models, you know, because if you think about it, if I am a company that makes software for restaurant reservations, for example, well, guess what? People were not going to restaurants anymore, Uh, you know, at least not like they were. But what happened is a lot of them pivoted into food delivery systems, which are actually a a variation because now you've got somebody making an order on a menu. um, They're picking it up at a certain time or it's being delivered. So you still have scheduling elements and you still have integration elements, but it's not exactly like a reservation. Um, And so those companies were able that were able to make that pivot have been successful. The ones that didn't really suffered. And especially those that were based on percentage of meal, you know, like if they're saying, oh, per transaction model, that was not good. The ones that were based on a monthly sort of fee or what I would call a subscription model actually survived better. So again, it will have an impact on the business models as well, which is, you know, again, you know, the consumers may not see this, but it will have some fundamental, you know, impact and, and shift some ways that companies do business with their customers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, ending on a hopeful note then, uh, uh, but when do you think will be done uh, with the vaccine distribution and the vaccination efforts? Oh boy, I already predicted this once and I was completely wrong. So I shouldn't do it again, I think. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't think it's like one day it's going to be better. I think part of the challenge is that every, you know, we talked about the United States and the 50 states and, you know, the, the distribution, but this is a worldwide problem, right? And so I think that every country, every region of the, of the globe is going to have different uh, reaction, you know, and, and, and sort of you know, bounce, back and bounce back from these situations. And, and so, for example, travel industry is a great example where obviously international travel has been, you know, heavily affected and people that offer, you know, hotel rooms or tours or whatever those services and and products are have been hit. But what they found is that a lot of people are traveling locally. So I think what's happened is that both consumers and businesses have tried to adapt to what's going on. And, you know, the, the dire consequences that were predicted, if you remember a year ago about, you know, worldwide depression and just like pretty dramatic things haven't occurred. Uh, It doesn't mean that we won't have some kind of, you know, I don't know, reaction later on. But my feeling is that 
you know, that with the, um, uh, you know, sort of desire to get back to normal, you know, and there's a phrase that's used in the industry, which is business as usual. Mm. <laughs> We're not quite there yet, obviously, but everybody wants business as usual. And I think that probably, you know, the later part of this year, we're going to see that happening, but it's going to be in certain regions, you know, it may start in the US or Canada or Europe in certain pockets, it may start in certain industries, it's not going to be universal. But as it starts to happen, I think it will start to spread to other verticals and other parts of the, uh, you know, of the world as as things get healthier. Uh, in terms of not just the people, but the environments are doing business and, you know, with consumers wanting to go engage in certain things that they would never have thought of doing before, like going out to dinner or going to a movie or going for a trip, right? So these are all the things that will drive the economy. But I think that's likely to be, you know, probably the fall, you know, where you'll start to see people feeling a lot more comfortable about that. So that'll be my prediction. We'll have to come back and see. Right. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to hold you to it, <laughs> uh, but we'll see what happens. Uh, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing everything get better. I'll tell you that. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contact us at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible. This is us signing off from The Vaccine Challenge.